of you may recognize that clip from the movie Prince of Egypt. Uh, this talked about uh, Moses being the deliverer of the people of Israel uh, from their slavery in Egypt. Uh, but I want to start out with a kind of a different question this morning for all of you sitting here. I want to kind of ask you this question. If you could have dinner with one famous person from the past, who would you pick? All right, so think about this. Let me kind of mold this over in your mind for just a moment. Some of you have had to answer this question in different ways. This is, uh, it was actually a, a college question or a scholarship question. I had to answer that question to apply for a scholarship a long, long time ago. And I remember uh, trying to figure out who that would be. So let me ask you that question again. If you could have dinner, if you could invite or sit down with one famous person from history... Who would that person be? Of all the famous people who have gone on before us, all the famous people who who have been through this world, who would you sit down with? Who is it that you want to sit down and really just soak in their wisdom or soak in their experience? Now, before you get too Christian and too churchy and too Sunday schoolish, let's take Jesus off the table, okay? Because you're all like, well, it's Jesus because we're in church and that's the answer we're supposed to give you, right? So let's just take that off the table for right now. You've got to pick somebody else mentally for right now, okay? So who would it be that you would pick? Some of us in this room, some of us may go like a, a, a political leader. Some of us may go for a founding father like a, a George Washington or a Thomas Jefferson or a Benjamin Franklin. Somebody, one of those founding fathers of our nation. You may go, maybe not that far back, but you may go to political leaders like um, Abraham Lincoln or, or one of the Roosevelt's or um, Reagan or Kennedy. You may pick one of those past presidents that, that you just want to sit down with. And some of you... You're not that big into politics, but maybe you want to go uh, to somebody who is kind of political, but also kind of military, and, and they're known for their military conquests. So you might pick somebody like an Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or, or maybe even the short guy, Napoleon Bonaparte. That's probably who I would pick because he'd be the only one that I could look down on. Um, but for some of you, you might... Sorry, short joke. You guys will understand. But for some of you, you might come a little closer to our time. You might do a Winston Churchill, or you might want a George or, or Patton, or a, a John or a Douglas MacArthur. Or you might pick one of those guys. Or maybe politics and military is not your thing, and so you want to go in a completely different direction. You want to go the spiritual direction. So you would pick somebody that's been a spiritual influence. And so for some of you, you might pick a Billy Graham, or you might go a little further back to a George Whitfield or a Jonathan Edwards, and some of you may go back a little further, maybe it's a Martin Luther, maybe it's John Calvin, maybe it's some of those reformers that you just want to sit, and some of you may just, you may even restrict yourself to the Bible. Let's pick somebody from the New Testament, maybe a Paul or a, or a Peter or John, or maybe one of the Marys, whether it be the mother of Christ or the, the sister of Martha or Mary Magdalene, or you may go to the Old Testament, maybe sitting down with David. Could you imagine sitting down with David and hearing his story of David and Goliath? I mean, we've got that story, but to hear it from him, or maybe, maybe it's his son Solomon that you just want to sit down with, and the smartest, wisest man in all of history, what if you could just sit down with him and just absorb some of his wisdom, just soak it in for a moment, or, or maybe you would want to hear from Joshua, kind of that firsthand, what was it like, what were you thinking when the walls came tumbling down? So out of all those great options, who would you pick? Who would you want to spend time with? And you may have somebody that I completely don't have listed anywhere or I thought of, but who would that one particular individual be? Now, for most of us, it would be very different, but if you were a first century Jew or you grew up Jewish, the vast majority of us would all answer that same question with one person. 
We would all want to sit down and we would all want to have Moses over for dinner. You see, for Moses, he represents all the categories that we just mentioned. He, he was the one who gained independence for their nation and really established their nation. So they take all of our founding fathers and put them into one person, and that was Moses for the Hebrew people. And, and Moses, he didn't fight as many military battles as Joshua, but you've got to understand that when you're as powerful as Moses, you don't necessarily have to fight all the battles because what you do is you just hold up your staff, the Red Sea parts, and then you watch the most powerful, advanced army in the world be crushed by the Red Sea. And you just stand on the shore and watch it. You see, not only was he a political leader, but he had great military strategy, and he was able to watch the defeat of the world's most uh, advanced and powerful army. But even beyond politics and military, he was their spiritual leader for the entire nation over a million and a half people came out of Egypt at this time. And Moses was the one they looked to for spiritual guidance. You see, Moses was the one that God spoke to through the burning bush. Moses And Moses alone was the one who was allowed to come up on the holy mountain and encounter God. And, and had such an encounter with God that his face literally shone. And shone so bright they had to put a veil over it so that you could look at him without being blinded. It was Moses that God gave the Ten Commandments to. It was Moses that the Holy Spirit inspired and instructed to write the the first five books of the Bible. And by the way, if you were Jewish by the age of 13, you had the first five books of the Bible memorized. And who do you give credit to? You give credit to Moses for that. And so for the Hebrew people, they owned, they owed their independence, they owed their theology, they owed their understanding of God and all of God's laws. It all was Moses. His writings dictated their worship, it dictated their religion, it dictated pretty much every aspect of their life for the next 1,500 years because that's about how long it was between Moses to Jesus coming. And so hands down, most Hebrews, most Jewish people, would have sat down for dinner with Moses because for 1,500 years, he was their political leader. He was their military leader. He was their spiritual leader. And unlike any other leader, their loyalty never faltered from him. And so for the writer of Hebrews, who's trying to convince the Hebrew people and the Jewish people that Jesus is superior and supreme, and sufficient above everything and anyone else, he knows that if he's going to convince the Hebrew people of this, he's got to start at the top. So he starts with Moses. He's going to show us, we spent chapter 1 and chapter 2, talking about how Jesus is superior and above all the angels. And then he turns to this human person of Moses. And he is the end-all, be-all of human beings in the Jewish settings. And so for him, he turns his attention in the first part of chapter 3, which is where we're going to be this morning, Hebrews chapter 3, the first six verses. And he's really going to show them that Jesus is even more than Moses. As high as the pedestal as you put Moses on, Jesus deserves to be higher. As much attention as you give to Moses, you should give even more to Jesus. As much obedience and admonition that you give to Moses, Jesus is worth even more than that. And so we're going to read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. We're going to pray that we will see not only Jesus is more than Moses, but He is more than anything or anyone else. So let's go ahead and read in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and read through verse 6. Verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers and companions in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, he was faithful to the one who anointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything 
is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. Finally, verse 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over His household. And we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. Let's pray together. God, we thank You so much that You are here. God, we have sang and invited Your Holy Spirit to be with us, so God, that we may feel Your presence this morning. And God, You didn't need that invitation. It was more an invitation for us to already meet You here because You were here already. And so God, I pray this morning that we will do exactly as Your Word says. God, that we will consider Jesus. Consider the Son. God, that we will gaze on Him with awe and wonder that He deserves. And so, God, I pray this morning that we will be so focused on Him and who He is and what He has done. God, that we lose focus on everything else for this moment. God, let our eyes be fixed on You. Let our ears be attentive to the words that You have for us. And God, let our hearts be wide open to the message that You have for us this morning, Father. And God, I pray that You speak. And God, I pray that we just consider you in the stillness and calmness of what this moment is. God, I pray you speak, and I pray we be obedient and listen, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. On October 12, 1945, President Harry Truman uh, presented the army, an army medic with the highest and most dignified medal of the U.S. Service, or US military service. He gave him the Medal of Honor. Uh, and, and so just so you understand, the Medal of Honor is only awarded for extreme acts of valor. In fact, there have only been 35, about 3,500 servicemen since its inception during the Civil War. Right? So think of all the veterans you know, all of the folks who have passed on uh, and died in battle. Only 3,500 of them since the Civil War have been given this high Honor, right? And so what made this presentation different and, and, and kind of unusual was that this was the first time that this Medal of Honor was given somebody who refused to carry a gun. It's the first time this Medal of Honor was given to somebody who was in the military, because you have to be in the military to get it, but someone who never carried a weapon and never fired a shot. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Desmond Doss. Uh, he became really popular several years ago through a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. But Desmond was drafted into the army, but because of his religious beliefs, he, he refused to carry a gun and refused to fire a weapon. He was a pacifist, meaning he didn't believe in fighting, he didn't believe in battle, but he believed that, he, that God had blessed this nation and he had a job to do to serve this nation, but it had to come in a different way than firing weapons. And so he went to the, the uh, boot camp, he did all this training, never touched a weapon, never held a weapon, refused to do it all the time, and he was going to be a combat medic. And so during one of the bloodiest battles in World War II, Doss's unit came under fire, and uh, for about 12 hours they were under siege. And in that 12-hour time frame, Doss was able to take about 75 men and drag them to safety. And when I say drag them to safety, he didn't just take them from one place to another. He literally was on the field dragging them one by one to the top of a ridge where he would tie them to a rope, and then he would lower them down to medics who would catch them on the ground below. And then he would go back and he would get another one. And he'd drag them and he'd bring them and drop them down on the rope. And he did this for 12 
hours and rescued 75 men by lowering them down to these medics. And at one point during this uh, attack, he was wounded by a grenade. A grenade came and he went and he tried to kick it away because he knew it was going to kill him and the other person. But while he, he couldn't quite get his foot out there quick enough, and so it blew up and it put 12, or excuse me, 17 pieces of shrapnel in his leg. But that didn't stop him from patching up the men that were sitting there that were wounded as well. So he patched them up and he tried to reach other men that were, that were in, within arm's reach where he could get to. And he had to wait for other medics who would come and do for him what, somebody, or what he had been doing for all these other people. And so finally, after waiting hours there, these medics showed up. And he made sure that all the other men got out first. And then they finally said, all right, it's your turn. We've got to take you. And they loaded him on this little stretcher, this little, not a gurney because it didn't have wheels, but literally a stretcher. And they were carrying him out. And as they were carrying him out, he saw a soldier off to a side that was wounded. And he begged them, stop, 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 I need to go help that guy. And they're like, dude, you can't, we can't just stop. Like, we, we can't just stop in the middle of this attack. Like, we've got to get you out of here. And he said, no, you've got to stop. And they said, no, we can't do it. So he rolled off of the gurney onto the ground himself and then crawled over to the guy and patched him up and then convinced the medics, take him and then come back to me. He's in far worse shape than I am. Take him and then come back for me. And as he sat there and waited... For them to come back for him, a Japanese sniper hit him in the arm and shattered the bones in his arm. But that still didn't stop him. Because he was able to find the stock of a rifle. And the only time he was able that, that he touched a gun, when this was only part of a gun, he took the stock of the rifle and he made a splint for himself. And then he continued to crawl the other 300 yards to safety. See, one of the soldiers that was with Doss on the ridge said, It seemed as if God had a special mission for Doss. And that God had his hand on Doss's shoulder during the battle. He said, honestly, I have no other explanation of why he is still alive today. And see, Doss said he had no other choice. He had to remain faithful both to his religious beliefs, but also to the task that God and his country had given him. God and his country had given him the talents and the abilities and the task to help those men on the field. And he was going to do it to the very, very end. See, that's one thing that Doss has in common with both Moses and Jesus, that they were all faithful to the task that was given them. They were all given a very specific job, a very specific task to complete, and they were all faithful to do that task. And so in Hebrews chapter 6, we'll start in verse 2 for just a moment, but the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that Moses and Jesus, they were both faithful. So I want you to notice that, that he never speaks bad. He never downplays who Moses was. He never says anything bad about Moses. He simply elevates Jesus above him. But he's, in verse 2, he says, He, being Jesus, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was to all God's household. You see, the word faithful here means that he proved himself trustworthy, that there was a task to be done, and he continued till that task, and that he did his business, and he executed this duty into a certain way, a respectable, righteous way. And so the writer of Hebrews says that this is true. This is true of Moses that you hold up to high esteem, but it's also true of Jesus. They were both given tasks to do, and both of them did it faithfully. But we've got to go back to verse 1, because in verse 1, not only were these two men faithful, but what he wants to show in verse 1 is the task they were given was very, very different from each other. Right? So both of them are faithful, both of them can claim that, but the task they were given was completely different. So I want you to back up with me to verse 1. And this is where we start to see Jesus being elevated over Moses. And to those who were 
They were faithful, but they had different tasks. And, and so we're going to walk through, really kind of slow crawl through verse 1, because there's so much good stuff here. And so verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling. All right, so I want you to understand who he's talking to. He's not trying to convince Jewish people that they should become Christians. Right? At this point in the letter, he is writing to the brothers, okay? to the brethren, to those who are holy companions in the heavenly calling. So he's talking to folks, he's addressing folks that have already put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's talking to folks who are already Christians, they've already claimed the, the, the name of Christ, they've already read chapter 2, which we worked through last week, they've already know that Jesus came, they already know that His death was the sacrifice, they already know that His blood washed them clean, they already know everything that He says in verse 2. So He says, Therefore, brothers, since you know all of that stuff, since you already put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ... You need to know who He is. So then He says, in going on in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers and companions in the holy and the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now this one word is huge. Consider. It's a very powerful word. It means more than just to look at something or to think about something. It literally means to fix your eyes and your mind on something. It means to gaze at it or to stare at it so that it becomes meaningful to you on the inside. There's an old hymn that I grew up singing it was this, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Now some of you may, be, you may have grown up in a church like I did that sang hymns, and some of you may not have, but the words of this hymn are so beautiful. It simply says, this, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Now for some of us, that's, we need to stop right there. For some of us, that's the message that we need to hear this morning because for some of us, we need to stop and we need to consider Jesus. We just need to, to not even go any further in this passage. We just need to stop and bask here. We just need to gaze at Him. We just need to focus on Him. We need to look full in His wonderful face because let me ask you, brothers and sisters, companion in the heavenly calling, when was the last time you honestly did that? When was the last time that you gazed into the eyes of your Savior. And I'm not talking about physically, because obviously we can't do that physically. But when was the last time that you stared so focused and so intently on Jesus that everything else in this world took second place and everything else in this world really faded into darkness? When was the last time that you considered Jesus, that you stared at Him, He became the sole focus of your attention in such a way that everything else took second place? When was the last time we gave that kind of attention to Jesus? John MacArthur once said in a message about the same passage, he said that this is what we need more than anything because, this is what, because none of us ever come close to, quote, discovering all of His glory and all of His beauties and all that He is. He goes on to say, consider Jesus. I mean that when stuff gets rough and the problems come and everything goes bad and you start thinking about certain things and there are certain temptations and so forth and so on, put your gaze on Jesus. Keep it there intently until all that He is begins to unfold before your eyes. You see, when we consider Jesus, we focus on Him so much, so intently, that whatever problem you're facing suddenly becomes so much smaller because He becomes so much bigger. See, the words of the song... Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. All the stuff that was yelling and screaming and getting your attention, all of that goes dim. Why? Because His glory and grace is all that you see. 
And suddenly these problems that you thought were this big and these mountains you never thought you were going to get over and these problems that you were dealing with and these pressures you were dealing with over and over and over again suddenly seem about this small because God is so much bigger. And some of us need to stop right here in this passage and we just need to consider Him. Not today. Not in the moments of worship. We need to do it now, but we don't need to just do it now. Every day. Look full in His wonderful face. For some of us, it's been a long time since we've been blown away by His glory and His grace. And so for some of us, we just need to stop and consider Jesus. But we need to consider who He is. And so we're going to move on in this passage. So consider these two tasks that Jesus has that even Moses, as great as he was, could not fulfill. The first one, he says, consider Jesus the Apostle. Now, the Apostle is not a word that we associate with Jesus most of the time. In fact, I think this may be the only passage in Scripture that it connects Jesus as the Apostle. Because for most of us, in our mind, the Apostles are the twelve disciples. All right, And so we, Jesus had these twelve men that followed around, learned from Him, and they become the twelve Apostles. All right? Now, understand... That that's not exclusive, because, because Paul was not one of those twelve disciples, but he refers to himself as an apostle. And so even outside of the Christian realm, apostle was a common term, right? So it wasn't just it wasn't a Christian term. They didn't make this term up. It simply means that an, an apostle is a messenger or really somebody who's an ambassador. Someone who came from one place as a representative of that place to another place. And so you can think of terms that, as the United States. We send ambassadors all over the world, right? That we have ambassadors in, in almost every country and all over the world. We send representatives to those places and, and they carry a certain amount of authority with them. You see, they don't just represent themselves. They represent you and I, right? So when the ambassador of the United States is in Germany, let's say the, the German ambassador, when he speaks... It's the same as if President Biden was there and he was speaking. Okay? It carries that same authority with it. So an ambassador doesn't just represent himself. He doesn't just say, hey, here's what I think. He speaks on behalf of whoever sent him. So understand, this is what the Hebrews is saying about Jesus, that Jesus is speaking with the authority of the one who sent him, which the one who sent him is God himself. So Jesus is the ultimate authority. He has the ultimate authority. He is the ultimate ambassador. And so the writer is really kind of giving you the divine nature of Christ. He is the apostle, the ambassador, because he is 100% divine. He's the ultimate ambassador from heaven to earth because God sent him, because he carries the same authority of God, because He is God. He's stepping from heaven to earth. He came from there to here. And see, unlike Moses, Moses cannot carry this title because he can't carry this task. Moses never came from anywhere to earth to be their representative. He can be a spokesman for God. He can be a messenger for God. But he can't be an ambassador because he didn't come from heaven to earth. He's always been here. His origins are here just like yours and mine. And so all of a sudden we start to see that Jesus has an authority and a position that Moses can never occupy. And he's above Moses. He's more than Moses. But then he goes on and he gives him the second title. which not just speaks to his divine nature, but also his human nature. At the end of verse 1, he says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. You see, the priest's role was somewhat the opposite of the apostle's. It was somewhat the opposite of the ambassador. You see, an ambassador came from, from one place to another to represent them, but the priest's job was the exact opposite. So the priest's job was to represent humans in the sight of God. 
Right? So the priest was carrying out sacrifices so that we could send messages up to God. They carried out those messages, or they carried messages to God. The, the, the root word for priest comes from a Latin word, and it actually means the bridge builder. Okay? So he's the bridge builder between humans and God. So I want you to see how beautiful this is. What the apostle is, is what the priest is in the opposite direction. So the apostle comes from heaven to earth, represents God on behalf of the people, okay, or, or to people. The priest represents people to God. Right? So I want you to see how beautiful this is and what he's telling you. There's not a one-way street between us and God. There is now a two-way bridge between us and God, that we have a connection to God that doesn't just run one way. He doesn't just dictate to us. He doesn't just speak to us. He didn't just send lightning bolts down to us. He doesn't just send stuff to us. We now have access because of the bridge builder, because of the high priest, back to him. And so understand this passageway between us and God, this bridge, is not just a one-way passageway. It is a two-way passageway. It is a beautiful idea that he is the ambassador, meaning he comes from heaven to connect to earth, but he's also the priest, meaning he builds the bridge from earth back to heaven. You see, Moses did a lot of great things, but he was never considered the high priest. In fact, he was never even given that title at all. His brother Aaron had that title. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, Listen, I understand that you love Moses. But you need to understand that someone is greater than Moses. You see, Moses had a job to do. His job was to deliver you from the land of Egypt, and he did that. He was faithful to that task. Moses' job was to bring you the law, and he did that. But you need to understand that there's someone who can do what Moses cannot do. You see, because what God can do, what Jesus can do that Moses cannot do, is that while Moses can deliver you from slavery, he cannot deliver you from hell. But Jesus can. He can deliver you from sin and He can deliver you from death. He alone can give you eternal life. He alone can get you into heaven. And for all of you, what you need is not Moses. You need Jesus. And so He's telling us, consider Jesus. Gaze at Jesus. Focus on Jesus less than Moses because Jesus is more than Moses because He is not only a bridge from heaven to earth, but He's also the bridge from earth back to heaven. And so where Moses' life ends is where Jesus picks up and says, listen, this is where your life ends, but I've got another place for you. I've gone ahead of you to prepare for you. You see, he does what Moses cannot do and not just bring in deliverance from this world, but in the world to come. He is more than Moses because he is the apostle and he is the high priest that is faithful in his calling. My guess is that most of us have never heard of the lady named Alice Miller. In fact, I had never heard of her until I looked up this story, and I was just curious about this story. And so I looked her up, and, and you can find her. Uh, there is a, a Wikipedia page, which always is the source of every good information, right? Wikipedia always find good sources there, right? But if you look her name up, her article is about this big, which is fairly impressive that you have a Wikipedia article at all, all right? Because there's not one about Michael Rakes. Trust me, I tried, all right? It's just not there, okay? But... She, she, in, in 1923, she made a business deal with a friend of hers that turned out to be a huge success. You see, her love and her passion was rare and hard-to-find books, right? This was what she loved to deal with, and she had this passion for it. She actually met her husband at a bookstore, and uh, he, he was much older than her, so he passed away. And so they, they were doing this business of, of becoming booksellers together, but when he passed away in the 1920s, it left her by herself. And it left her by herself at a time 
when it was really hard for women to be in business for themselves. It was really hard for women to get business meetings with people who were going to invest in their business. It was really hard for them to, to get deals and contracts with people who were going to write books and sell books. It was even hard for them to get in the space where those people were at. And so she invested this, uh, or she came up with this business strategy and the business strategy was simply this. In 1923, she commissioned her friend to build her a house for $17,000. Now, some of us are like, that's a heck of a deal, $17,000. That's amazing. You could build a house for that. But remember, it's 1923, so I, I looked this up too. Just for inflation, that's about $200,000 today. Okay? So a pretty good chunk of change, a pretty good investment here, but it turned off to pay off tremendously because by the end of her life, she was, quote, one of the most important American booksellers of the 20th century. And how in the world did this lady become one of the most important booksellers and, and instructors and editors for the, all of these great authors? How did she do that? It was because she could gain meetings with people that nobody else could. She could gain meetings with powerful, wealthy, influential people in a way that nobody else could. And she did it by inviting them to her house. Come over to my house. I want you to, to come to my house and let's meet there. Now, for most people, that would not be a big draw. For most people, they'd be like, no, that's all right. I don't even have time to meet you in my office, much less come to your house. You see, but Alice Miller had a secret weapon. Her house that she commissioned for $17,000 wasn't designed by a local architect or a local builder. Her friend who designed the house for her was the very famous Frank Lloyd Wright who was coming to his stride at that time as being the most well-known and sought-after architect in the entire country. And so all of these influential, wealthy, powerful people came to her house, not really to meet Alice Miller, but they wanted to walk into a Frank Lloyd Wright house. They wanted to see the architecture of this house firsthand. So then they could go and they could brag about the fact they had been in this man's house, this house he designed. And so understand that, that she lived there, but the value of the house was not because she lived there, it was because of who built it. The fact that her value didn't increase at all, or her value actually took off because of the house that she lived in, because of the name that was on the house. By the way, that house today, if you wanted to buy it, was about $4 million worth. Right? So understand that the house has value, but it's not because it's Alice Miller's house, but because it's Frank Lloyd Wright's house. It's because he is the architect and the builder. You see, the builder of the house is way more important than who lived in that house. The person living in the house benefits because of who the builder was. And you see, that's the second point that the writer of Hebrews makes when he compares Jesus and Moses. He says that Jesus is the builder while Moses is the resident of the house. I want you to look with me in verse 3. He says, For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, this sounds kind of strange for us, but to understand this, you have to kind of back up and, and you have to kind of put yourself in the first century Jewish mindset. You see, for the first century Jewish mindset, and really for all the Jewish mindset, it was Moses who built the tabernacle. It was under the leadership of Moses who literally built and laid out this architectural design for the tabernacle. And for the tabernacle, that was their church. It was a tent they could pick up and move when they moved. But for more than that, it contained this one special part which contained the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies contained this one special thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what they called the mercy seat. It was all made with gold. 
And for them, that's where God sat. This was the physical representation of the presence of God. And so for Moses, he designed and he built this house. This is where God was. And so if you were going to encounter God, you went to this place. And it was so reverent and holy that you couldn't just go. You had to be a high priest. And there was all these other rules about it. But for the people, this was literally God's house. This is what they said. And it was Moses who gave them instructions on how to build this house. And so when they looked to Moses, they said, Moses is the one who built the house of God. You see, later they would say it was Solomon who built the house of God because he built the temple, but it was still off of Moses' design of the tabernacle. But see, what the writer of Hebrews wants to remind us is that Moses, he's not the builder of God's house. God is the builder of the house of God. He is the architect. He provided the plans and dimensions of what the house should look like. All the way back in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, God is talking to Moses and he tells him, he says, you must make it it be in the house, according to all that I show you, and the pattern of the tabernacle, and all the patterns of, and all of its furnishing. Right? So then from chapter 25, all of it, I and mean, God gives him the details. Make it this size, make it this shape, make it this, make it that, make it all this stuff. All the way over to chapter 31, verses, or the first few verses of chapter 31. It says, Then the Lord also said to Moses, Look, I have appointed by name Belzah, son of Uriah, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with God's Spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and the ability of every craft to design artistic works of gold, silver, and bronze, to cut gemstones for mounting and carving wood for work of every craft. You see, not only was God the architect, but he was the one that provided the materials. Not only was he the provider of the materials, but he's the one who filled the craftsmen with wisdom and knowledge to know how to do what they were called to do. And so if there's any builder involved in the house of God, it is God himself who should get credit for building the house of God. It was not Moses. Moses gets to be part of the house, but he doesn't get credit for building the house. You see, the house of God was not contained within a physical building. It actually is consisting of all of us who believe in Him. He dwells in us and lives inside of each of us. You and I are the house of God. We are the household of God. And Moses gets to be part of the house of God, but he doesn't get the credit for being the architect of the house of God. All of that was given by God Himself. And, and He goes on to say, and He connects to the fact that, that God made everything. And look back in chapter 1. Everything was made through Christ. And so what he's saying here is, listen, if there's a builder, it is Christ. That Moses gets to be part of it, but he didn't get credit for it. To understand that Jesus is more than Moses and worthy of more glory than Moses because he is the builder and Moses is just the resident of the house. But there's one final way that Jesus is more worthy than Moses. And it's simply that Moses is the servant while Jesus is the son. Last two verses I want us to look at. In this passage, the first one is in verse 5. It says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. You see, Moses was a servant. His job was not to be the Messiah. His job was not to be the Savior. He could not be the Savior. He would not be the Savior. His job was to faithfully point to the Savior point to what was going to be said in the future. So the first five books of the Bible, you know what the purpose of the first five books of the Bible are? They're to point you to Jesus. They're to point you to what was coming, 
to the Savior that was coming. They're pointing you to the direction. This is what you need to pay attention to. And so understand that He's giving you all these instructions. He's telling you about all this tabernacle. He's telling you about all these laws and regulations. And He's doing it all to show you the need of the gospel. This is what it's going to look like when the Son comes. This is why you need the Son. This is why you need a Savior. Because all of these rules and laws, and all this standard that God put in place, this is all to show you how holy He is and how unworthy you are. And so Moses' job was to point people to Jesus, to give a testimony of what was coming in the future. And so Moses does that faithfully. He is a servant. But then we get to verse 6. Because verse 6 gives a very different picture of Jesus. Moses was a faithful as a servant. Verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household. If we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. You see, Christ has a title that no one else in Scripture has. He is the Son. Moses is a servant, but Jesus is the Son. And everybody knows there's a difference between the servant and the Son. The Son has authority that the servant does not, cannot, and will never have. In fact, it echoes what Jesus makes clear in John chapter 8, verse 34. Through 36, he's having a discussion with some Jewish leaders that are they're, they're not very happy with him and what he's telling them and what he's teaching them. And so he responds to them in verse 34. It says, Jesus responded, I assure you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Now, why does he use that language? Because that's their history. They were slaves in Egypt. Right? They were bound there. They could not get out of Egypt on their own. Right? That's what sin does to you and I. It binds us. We are stuck there. We are slaves to it. We lose our free will. We lose our choice. We are stuck in a situation we can do nothing about. Verse 35. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. You see, there's a difference between the slave and the servant and the son. And we move on to verse 36. Therefore, if the son sets you free... You really will be free. A different translation would say, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You see, there is only one who can give you an invitation to the household of God. There is only one who can free you from the bondage that you are in. A slave cannot free another slave. A servant cannot free another servant. A servant cannot invite another servant into the house. The only one that can do that is the one who has the title of son. The one who has the authority to do that. The one who is ultimately the owner of the household is the son. And so a slave cannot do for another slave what the son can. A servant cannot do for another servant what the son can do. The son is the only one that can free you from the bondage of sin. A slave or a servant cannot do that. A servant like Moses, he, he can gain you political independence, but he can't gain you true freedom. He can't make you free indeed. A servant like Moses can point you to the one who can give you freedom, but the invitation is from him, not from the servant himself. You see, we come to this message, and honestly, most of us, when I ask you that question of who would you invite to dinner, who would you want to sit down with, the vast majority in this room, there may be one or two of you, and I won't make you raise your hand, but the vast majority of us, Moses was not our first choice. Right? Moses was not the one that immediately came to mind of this who I'd want to sit down with. And so we read this passage, and we read this message, and we think, well, this really doesn't apply to me because I wouldn't elevate Moses to that position. I wouldn't elevate Moses to a point where, yeah, I've got Jesus, but I've got to hang on to Moses too. We wouldn't put Moses there. But if we're not careful, we put someone or something else there. You see, we've got Jesus, 
but we're holding on and we're elevating something or someone else into that spot. For some of us, maybe it's government that we're, we're looking into that spot. And we've got Jesus, but we're holding out hope that government's going to have something for us. And we're holding out hope that government's going to have the answers to this society's problems. And we're holding out, maybe not just government in general, maybe we're honestly and we're, we're truthful, maybe we've latched on to a political party. This is our hope. Yeah, we got Jesus over here and that's fine, but it's this party or this person, or this politician, and all of our hope for our nation and ourselves is going to ride on this person. Yeah, we got Jesus. Well, that's all right. But we're going to focus over here. Can I share something with you? This person, this government, this party is not the answer to the world's problems. You want the answer to racism? It's not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or social justice, critical race theory. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. You want the answer to injustice and oppression? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. You want the answer for poverty and injustice across this world? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. And so what he's telling you is we don't have to necessarily think of Moses, but hold on to Jesus and quit looking to everything else for your answers. Consider Jesus. Focus on Jesus alone and quit looking at all these other things for answers that aren't going to give you the answers because the gospel is sufficient. It alone holds the message and alone holds the answers. And for some of us, maybe it's not a political situation. Maybe there's a spiritual leader that we kind of put in this place. Maybe it's the person who led you to Christ and you've really elevated them. You've held them at a certain level for your whole life. Maybe there's a former pastor or youth pastor, or maybe there's a certain writer that you've held. And, I mean, you just really hold them in high esteem. Yeah, you've got Jesus, but man, when that new author comes out with that new book, you just can't wait to get your hands on it. For some of you, you just can't wait to hear the next sermon from your favorite pastor or your favorite youth minister or whoever led you to Christ. And you're just waiting for whatever they have. Can I share with you that any time you elevate someone else to the status of, yeah, i got Jesus, but He's over here, but I've got this person, all you're doing is waiting for that person to fall off a pedestal they were never meant to be in on in the first place. Can I share with you that any time we put a person on a pedestal that was meant for Christ and Christ alone, it will ruin your faith. I can't tell you the number of times and the number of people who, who have followed a pastor instead of the Savior. Man, they have been all in. They, they've sucked in every message this pastor has given. And then they're reading. They're hanging on to every single word. And all of a sudden they get word that this pastor has had a moral failure. Or this pastor is not doing what they thought they were doing. Or this pastor suddenly left and, and uh, left the church. Or maybe he even went heretical and started teaching something different. And they fail miserably. And what does it do with the wake of those people? Their faith is crushed. And they begin to question everything that they were taught. See, the problem wasn't Jesus. The problem was they were following a servant and not the son of Jesus. They listened to the words of a servant whose job was to point them to Jesus, but instead started pointing them to themselves. And they listened to a servant who didn't, wasn't faithful to their job of, listen, he must increase and I must decrease. If you want anything, love him more and me less. You see, some of us may not be guilty of elevating Moses, but we may be just as guilty of elevating somebody else. And so with it, we need to join with John in saying he's got to increase and everything else has got to decrease. And we simply do that by going back to the very first verse that we started with this morning. Consider Jesus. 
Gaze at him. Look full in his wonderful face until the things of this world, even the people that we elevate, until they look strangely dim, into the light of his glory and grace, until we realize that the gospel is sufficient. We don't need Jesus and everything else. What we need is Jesus and Jesus alone. And let all the other stuff fade and become strangely dim because our eyes are so fixed on him that we don't need all the other stuff. They don't have the answers that they promised that they did. Consider Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And all the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let's pray together.